Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you, um, but to be fair, um, after last year, I didn't think I'd be asked back. Um, so be more vocal to Ian if you don't want me back next year. Um, anyway, it's really difficult to come up with a topic to preach on uh, for a school commissioning service, um, particularly when it's just with whatever the spirit leads. So that just got me thinking about the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of where my head went. And I want to draw your attention to a passage in Zechariah chapter 4. So if you can open up your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4, that's where I'm going to be drawing most of my points from. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to pray. So why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for an opportunity to meet together from a variety of different churches. But I pray that we would have one single thing in our mind, and that is Jesus Christ is all sufficient for our salvation. He is all sufficient for our life. He's all sufficient for our eternity. And we can cling to him in every single circumstance. So I thank you that we have that in common. I particularly ask this morning that as we look at Zechariah, your passage, uh, that you, or your prophecy that you've given to Zechariah, I pray that uh, my words would be clear. I pray that they would be understandable. But more than that, God, I pray that you'd give discernment to everybody here who is listening. I pray that you'd help them to understand what is truly your truth and they'll be able to cling on to that and they would disregard things that are purely man's opinion. So I pray that you bless us this morning. May your word be active and may it not return void. I say in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that God has challenged me with over the Christmas break was stopping and... The irony of that statement hit me as I started busily writing this sermon. Before I could even get out the sentence that I'm currently reading that I wrote down, um, I was in a room of my house with my laptop ready and open and I just stared out the window. Stared out the window for a good 30 minutes, not intentionally, I just sat there thinking about stopping. Out of my window I can see a little bit of nature. There's trees and long grass and insects and birds. We've got two cats. We even have three chickens. What was so striking while looking at God's creation is that it was the complete opposite of the experience that I had this week. The trees were just swaying in the breeze, insects just gliding through the air, visiting all the different bushes and plants. Cats were stretched out in the shade. Not a worry in the world. They couldn't care less about politics or wars or inflation. They weren't striving. They weren't driven by the burden to fulfil or even find their life's purpose. They aren't busy, at least not in the sense we understand it. They just are. They just exist. There was this tangible sense of rest, as if creation was content with who they were, what they were, and the part that they played, just being a single thread in God's cosmic tapestry. Don't get me wrong. All of the nature that I saw was doing something. Well, all of it except the cats. <laughs> Birds were singing. Bees were pollinating. Spiders were weaving. Dragonflies were doing something important, I'm sure of it. My point is that none of it was confused. None of it was hectic. It had contentment in order. It had beauty in purpose. It had calm instead of calamity. And I started thinking about my life. Would my life look the same as this picture of fallen serenity? This picture of peace and contentment, this image of rested doing? And as I thought about it, the true answer was no. It looked more like abrupt chaos 
relentless striving, frustrated deadlines, not meeting expectations, internal pressure, endless engagement with needless information. Now, I was struck with the uh, question, was I the God-intended version of me? And I don't mean in some esoteric way or look at me, I'm a special, unique individual snowflake. <laughs> Just do I have the same confidence, conviction and contentment as a magpie? While I was sitting there thinking about my life, this song from Ugly, Ugly Kid Joe popped into my head. He didn't write it, but you probably know it's called Cats in the Cradle. You know that song? It's a great song to listen to if you want a reason to quit your job and spend all your time with your kids. Its lyrics are the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue, and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. We'll know we'll have a good time then. It's a song about a dad who doesn't have time for his kids, can't read them bedtime stories, play catch in the backyard, or spend any quality time because of the 1,000 reasons that we're all familiar with. The line that really impacted me was in the verse where the boy is talking to his father and he says, can you teach me to throw? I said, not today, I've got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. He walked away, but his smile never dimmed. He said, I'm gonna be like him. You know, I'm gonna be like him. If you know the song, you know by the end, his son is just like him. His son grew up a slave to striving. His son as an adult has no time because of the 1,000 reasons he was taught to waste it. What would it look like if we stopped and each day were the fullest expression of God's intention? What if we were the obvious reflection of God's created order? And that is the challenge for the scriptures today. How do we stop and become the very representation of God's will in the world and God's design for our lives? When are you coming home, son? Let's read Zechariah 4, verse 1 to 7. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. What we are seeing here in this portion of scripture is the fifth vision that Zechariah receives around the construction of the temple. And for context, Zechariah is a younger dude prophesying to a remnant of people, a relatively small amount of people who have returned from Babylon after the exile. When God called them to rebuild the city and he asked them to rebuild the temple of God. When they got back to Jerusalem, the book of Haggai tells us the people came across some difficulties when they started building the temple. Political difficulties, they had aggressive neighbours, there was whinging old people involved. So what they did is they gave up on rebuilding the temple for about 16 years and they went about their busyness. 
It's in that context that Zechariah is speaking to the remnant of Israel, particularly to a governor, a dude named Zerubbabel, and another guy named Joshua the high priest. And what he's doing is he's encouraging the people to start building the temple again. It's no surprise then that God gives Zechariah a vision, and it does sound very weird to us, but it is filled with symbolism that was very familiar to the Israelites. See, in this vision we see a golden lampstand, and I want you to try and picture it. It's a golden lampstand with seven lamps on it. In those days, lamps were not made of wax. They burnt with oil. They had something similar to this, or it's introduced, this idea of the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. The difference in this image is that this golden lampstand had a big bowl above it with seven pipes or seven conduits from that bowl to each of the lamps. So it's hard to kind of imagine, but there was 49 pipes in all. And beside this lampstand, there were two olive trees. And if you read further down, which I'm not going to do, if you read further down, verse 12 tells us that out of the olive trees, there were two golden pipes that filled up the bowl. So two trees with golden pipes that filled up a bowl, and then out of that bowl, there was 49 pipes that flowed down into the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand in Hebrew is called the menorah. And it's such a significant symbol to the Jews that they're still using it as their national symbol today. During Hanukkah, the Jews light the menorah. And when they light the menorah in Hanukkah today, it is in remembrance of the celebration of the dedication of the temple that Zerubbabel is about to build. The golden lampstand first shows up with Moses when God gives him instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where God's presence dwelt and only the Levitical priests were allowed inside to complete all the appropriate rituals and sacrifices. The tabernacle was basically a large tent that was built out of layers of animal skin and thick cloth. This was later rebuilt into the temple by King Solomon. The reason I bring that up is because the important thing to note is that inside that temple, there was a room called the holy place and there were no windows in that room so the golden lampstand, which was supposed to be burning 24 hours a day, was the only source of light in that room. It would have been interesting to see. So what does the golden lampstand represent? It's clearly symbolic of something. Is it symbolic of the presence of God? Is it symbolic of the nation of Israel or the people of God? Is it symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Jews rightly understood the symbolism in some ways. They understood the golden lampstand to represent them as a nation. And Isaiah 49.6 highlights this. It says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? And Isaiah goes on to say, or God really through Isaiah, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Here we see the collective witness of the people of Israel would or should be a light to the nations. But the part of the symbolism they fail to understand, which is clear by the time Jesus comes, is the lampstand without oil can't burn. A lampstand without oil can't provide light. This is why Zechariah's vision is so important. He sees a golden lampstand with a massive bowl over the top of it, filled with oil, and there's two olive trees with branches supplying the bowl with oil. In the tabernacle, it was the priest's job to fill the lampstand with oil, which 
to them was symbolic of a merit-based or work-based righteousness. They ended up trusting in their ability to keep the law and perform this ritual. They thought this would make them right with God. But here in Zechariah, God is saying, no, you're missing the point. There is an endless supply of oil that is not you. The oil isn't ritual or deeds of righteousness. The light isn't your ability to keep the Ten Commandments or the fact that you are sons of Abraham. The oil is my anointing. In verse 14 of chapter 4, we discover that the two olive trees are the anointed one, literally translated oily ones. There are two anointed persons or positions in the nation of Israel. Those two anointed positions were the king and the priest. And in this passage of Zechariah, it's clearly referring to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. So what God is saying through Zechariah to the remnant of Israel is the past 16 years have been hard. Don't give up. You have all the anointing you will ever need to do the things that I've called you to do. And priority number one right now is to build that temple. The people of Israel were supposed to be the light of salvation to the world. God is saying he will provide the oil, the fire, and the earth-moving machinery to make that become a reality. Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest rallied the people and they built the temple. Like I said, an event that is still celebrated in the Jewish calendar today. But did they ever truly become the light of salvation to all nations? Well, I would argue not exactly. By the time Jesus came, they were still teaching works-based righteousness. So why is this vision important for us today? Well, there is one more vision of the golden lampstand in the Bible. To be fair, there's many allusions to it, but there is one more vision. It's in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we get the final picture, the final revelation, the final prophecy of the menorah. It's another vision of the golden lampstand. And as I read it, what I want you to do is overlay the vision from Zechariah onto this one to see what has changed. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 1. It starts in verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining of the sun in full strength. If you keep reading, it says that the golden lampstand here is the church. What changed in that vision compared to the one in Zechariah? Well, there's no more olive trees. There's no more bowls. It's just Jesus. However, Jesus didn't replace those things. The opposite of that is true. He fulfills this vision. So what we have here in the vision in Zechariah is Jesus being the truly oily one, the true anointed one, the true king and high priest, pouring out his sevenfold anointing onto his people to anoint them to become the light of salvation in the world. Which brings me to the verse. The verse at least in this chapter, but I'd argue the verse in the Bible. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
God is saying to Zerubbabel, the governor of Israel, it's not by might, which in Hebrew means a group of people like an army, nor by power, which in Hebrew means the efforts of a single man. It's not by might or by power you'll build this temple. It's by my spirit. It's not by might nor by power you will burn. It's not by might nor by power that you'll be a light to the nations. It's not by might nor by power that you'll have an endless supply of oil to burn brightly or lead the people of Israel to burn brightly. It is by my spirit, saith the Lord of angel army. Zerubbabel did go on to lead the people to build the temple. And verse 7 did come true. They brought forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. But the same is true for church today. Our ability to burn brightly is not our ability to keep God's righteous standard, nor is it because of some position that we have, nor is it because of some ritual. It is the true oily one that lights our wick. The one like the Son of Man, whose eyes are a flaming fire, who is the true priest who keeps us burning day and night. The one with the voice like roaring waters, with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, who is the endless supply of oil, which is the Spirit. I'll prove it to you. Acts chapter 2. When the church was started, something seemingly strange happened. I'll read this to you as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What's happening here is not a vision in Acts 2. What's happening in Acts 2 is not a metaphor. This happened when the historic Christian church was started. What Jesus did, the first thing he did was he lit the menorah. The 120 odd people that were in that room literally turned into a candelabra. This was a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. Jesus lighting and supplying the oil for his people to burn the eternal flame so that the nations of the world would see that light and be drawn from darkness and into light. Now what's the point? And how is that linked at all to stopping? Well, every single thing that we do in the Christian walk harkens back to Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Our salvation is not by might or power. We don't come to God in might or power. We come by his spirit, trusting in Christ alone. Our sanctification. We don't mature as Christians through might and power or human effort. We are sanctified by his spirit. Evangelism is not by might nor by power. It is by his spirit. And that is literally what the truest form of prayer is. God, I have no might. God, I have no power. I'm pleading for your spirit to do a work. When you are walking by the spirit, when you are resting in the light of Christ, walking in the power of the spirit, what happens in your life is what happens in Zechariah 4.7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. It's exactly what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 11.23. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart but believes, what they say will happen. Because there ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no river wide enough. There ain't no valley low enough to keep me from you. Or more accurately, 
to keep the power of the Spirit of God at bay, to keep the Spirit of God from accomplishing what He wants to in our life, in the world, for the sake of His glory and for the sake of His kingdom. Every single thing that God has planned for you to accomplish in His kingdom is not by might, nor by power, but by His Spirit. If you want a theological term for that, we are talking about the sufficiency of God. God alone is sufficient for your salvation, sufficient to keep you in a state of grace. He alone is sufficient to light the way, to tear down principalities and powers, to topple kings and kingdoms, rewrite lives and rewrite history, and to trample down every mountain, every obstacle that is in the way of his glory. Amen? Sorry, normally preach at a Pentecostal church. <laughs> so why then do we constantly come back around to trusting in might and power when it's completely ineffective and only the Holy Spirit is sufficient? The church needs to get on board with the Spirit. We need to stop trusting in programs and good ideas and start trusting in the Spirit of God to do a work. We need to stop worrying about the effectiveness of our budget and worry about the effectiveness of the Spirit. It's the Holy Ghost, after all, and He blows where He wills, and surely that's the tornado we want to be caught up in. That's the wind I want to chase, chase after, the blowing of the Spirit, not the meaningless striping, the chasing the wind of this world. The common mistake for churches is to try and control everything. If we do that when people are lit on fire for the Gospel, we look for a fire extinguisher. When it starts getting Holy Ghost, breath of God, windy, we want to close the windows. And we've got good reasons for it too. It costs too much money. It's not financially wise. It'll take too much of people's time. And you can't expect that. Or my personal favourite, it's just not how we do things around here. And if anything is true from the Scriptures, is that God doesn't seem to care how things are done around here. And we should be eternally concerned with how He does things around here. So what does it take? What does it take to get caught up in the mountain-flattening tornado of the Holy Spirit? What does it take to be set on fire for the gospel? Well, this is another great paradox of Scripture. It takes nothing and it takes everything. It takes coming to the end of yourself. In your heart, on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour basis, you need to come to the end of yourself. Be at the point where you're, where you're brought to the very depth of your weakness, where your trust in your own might and your own power no longer exists. Really, you need to stop. Stop striving. Stop from the relentless grinding in your own power and your own might and your own intellect and your own control. When are you coming home, son? Don't say, I don't know when. Don't say, let me try one more thing. Let me post one more picture. Let me phone a lifeline. Let me get, a, get on with my own busyness. If I try hard, if I put in a little bit more effort, if I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'll get there. We can play tomorrow, Dad. Dad, I'll call you when the kids aren't sick and I'm not busy at work and I don't have issues. I'll call you when I finally stop juggling all the concerns of this life. If you're at a 16-year-long Holy Spirit dry season, stop, turn around, come home now. Come to rest in the sufficiency of the God who already gave you everything. Listen, no one's getting to heaven saying, I stepped out in faith too much. No one's going to heaven saying, I trusted in the power of the Spirit too much. I just wanted to radically live for Jesus and look where it got me. But many will arrive singing the tune of Cats in the Cradle. 
The call of scripture is to sacrifice our whole lives as a wick to burn the eternal flame. John Calvin said, God is sufficiently able to help us when there is no aid from any other. Whenever earthly aids fail, let us learn to rest on God alone. For it is not by our hopes or by might that God raises up his church and perseveres it in its proper state. He does this by his spirit. So in a weird time in human history, when men aren't men anymore for some reason, and equality means exclusion, you need to know that God's kingdom is going to expand. Many will come into the kingdom of light during this time because of this time. And he will use his true church. His menorah is going to accomplish this. He will use his collective golden lampstands. Those who aren't trusting in themselves or charismatic leaders or financial provisions or governments or institutional power that's going to be brought about by the menorah, burning the oil of the Holy Spirit, trusting solely in the power of the Holy Spirit to move when we think all else is futile because it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Just to finish, during World War II, uh, there was this dude from France named Albert Comus, or Albert Remus, for those of you who like <laughs> bad French pronunciations. Anyway, he wrote a book. Uh, the book was called The Plague. In this book, there was a virus that transfers from animals to humans and it kills half the world's population. The book's hero is a doctor who lives in some coastal French town where everything is ordinary. People living ordinary lives. The doctor actually says that the people were so consumed by the ordinary thrust of life, they barely even noticed they were alive. Anyway, the plague hits and everyone blames the government for not acting fast enough. The plague rapidly transmits from person to person and the story ends in tragedy and the meaninglessness of it all. One character basically suggests that the plague is a thing of the past. Surely modern advances in medicine make the plague not hurt us and that a doctor retorts to him, everyone knows that except the dead. The book is probably a metaphor for the plague of the Nazis during the war, but Camus states that our um, he states that he's showing how our lives are fundamentally on the edge of what he calls the absurd. After seeing a child die of the plague in the hospital, he realises that suffering is not controlled by God. It is meted out randomly, without meaning, without purpose, because in his mind, all of life is simply absurd. He wrote that during the Nazi occupation during World War II in a town called Le Chambon. But something else was happening in that town during the war. A group of Christians had set up a system to rescue Jewish refugees from certain death. During the war, this group of Christians at Le Chambon helped thousands of Jews flee the death camps and gas chambers. They saved more Jews than the total population of the town. Albert Clemmer was right. The system that he was a part of was simply absurd. But the salvific work of Jesus leaves us with hope that this world is not all we see. This world doesn't offer all we need, but we can shine the light of Christ and shine that not by might, nor by power, but by his spirit. So when you're coming home, son, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that your Bible, your words, your living and active word constantly reminds us what you have done for us. 
And in short, that is everything. I pray that the encouragement from today would be to solely trust in you. Whatever the circumstances in our life may be, whatever troubles we face, whatever mountains are in front of us, I pray, God, that we would trust in you. Lean wholly and solely in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. For our salvation, yes, but also for our walk, for our day-to-day, for our peace, for our contentment, as a reminder to stop. We want to build your kingdom. We'd love the Christian school to have a kingdom-building legacy. And God, I pray that we will trust in your spirit and the work of your spirit to get that accomplished. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.